Organissima New York. Your exotic skin, hair and beauty source and your one-stop shop for all your natural and organic skin and hair care. Featuring authentic organic Moroccan oil and prickly pear seed oil and much more. Bringing you only the best straight from the source and proudly produced in the USA. So what are you waiting for? Shop today. Organissima New York. Your beauty is our duty. What's up, party people? This is Kwame, and you are rocking with Chatters That Matter right here. Keep it locked. All right, peace. This is Rick Aaron, and you're watching Chatters That Matter with Dr. Cheryl Bryant-Bruce and Hurricane. Keep it locked. Greetings, everybody. You know me, Dr. Cheryl Bryant-Bruce, MD, the Celebrity Doc. And we are here with Chatters That Matters. Let's talk about it. I'm here with my show host, my co-host, Hurricane H. Keisha Melamati. Hello. And we are excited to have you here again. This show is your show. We're here to educate, inform, and entertain you. So come on board for the ride. We have a great show today. This is the tail end of Autism Awareness Month. And so we wanted to wrap this up with a, a nice panel of very interesting, well-educated well-informed folks that are here to bring you more information about autism. Now, this is a conversation and we want you to be a part of it. So you can join us in our chat rooms asking questions and our guest will be happy to answer those for you. And we want you to be a part of the show. So without further ado, I am going to start by interest, introducing our first guest, good Dr. Ansha Batra. And Dr. Batra has had the honor of previously being on the Oprah show. So I'm feeling very honored to have you on my show following Oprah. It doesn't get bigger than that. Dr. Batra, welcome. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you for having me. And um, thank you for the audience to uh, take an interest in this uh, subject that uh, um, that's very near and dear to my heart. Absolutely. We also have with us another doctor, Dr. Lamar Hardwick. Dr. Batra is a medical doctor and Dr. Lamar Hardwick is a doctor of divinity. Dr. Hardwick is known as the autism pastor. Welcome, Dr. Hardwick. Thank you for having me. And then we also have the good Dr. Lorraine Jones, who is a PhD. And Dr. Lorraine will be talking to us about the interactive metronome and explaining to us how that is used for children and even adults with autism. And... Um, We'll talk about what all of that means. So, Dr. Lorraine, also welcome to Chatters That Matter. Thank you so much. I am happy to and excited to be here to share some wonderful information. And uh, 
be part of this uh, incredible opportunity. Okay, perfect. So let's just jump right in. Um, I would like to know how each of you got into the field of working with autism. And while you're telling us, um, I want to know if each of you has had a direct involvement as in a family member or if you yourself may have been on the autism spectrum. I, I caveat that with saying, as I've said all, all month long, that I don't think that there's a person on the planet who isn't on the spectrum. It is a spectrum. So talk to us about how that has impacted you. Let's start with Dr. Batra. Thank you. Uh, so uh, as, as you mentioned, um, Cheryl, I'm uh, uh, Anshu Batra. I'm a developmental pediatrician uh, in uh, West Los Angeles. And um, I uh, started my journey into autism actually through um, initially, it that really was uh, as a pediatrician. I um, grew up in Michigan, Ann Arbor, Michigan. I always knew I wanted to be a pediatrician, went to med school there and uh, found my life partner there. And we um, we made our way to Chapel Hill, North Carolina to do our our training, uh, mine in pediatrics and his in, um, in, in um, critical care medicine. And I had always thought that I was going to be, I, I'd always wanted to be a small town pediatrician. I, I like growing my roots and being part of communities and being part of families. I mean, that's, that's the heart and soul of being a pe pediatrician is being, being, um, you know, an integral part of, of, of families and children and, and communities. And, right. and I just, that, that, I thought that's what I was, I would be doing. And then uh, as, 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 um, as, as life has it, um, you know, God laughs when, when you make plans. Um, <laughs> Doesn't he though? 100%. Um, so I had my first two kids. Um, I, I have three, three boys, my first two kids in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And then um, my husband got uh, recruited to UCLA in, in Los Angeles. So um, we, we came here kicking and screaming because I, I wanted to stay in a small town. <laughs> LA was not uh, a small town at that time. Um, but, uh, and, and uh, soon after we moved here, we started recognizing that, that my second son um, was not developing appropriately. And um, we got him evaluated. And I have to tell you, I thought I, you know, I, I was blindsided. He was diagnosed with autism and, and I'm a pediatrician. And, okay. um, and I think that it really, so it, what was it exactly that you were seeing at that time that triggered you to feel like he wasn't developing correctly? Right. He wasn't talking. Um, he wasn't relating. He wasn't making eye contact. Um, he, uh, it would be like, he would look right straight through me. Um, he, uh, would, would not interact much. He would play very, um, repetitively, with mm -hmm. things, um, not very, you know, again, I had an older son and, um, you know, two, three years older than him. And so it was, and, and being a pediatrician, I knew it was atypical, but I was not expecting autism. Um, at, at that right. time, you know, it was, I think, um, the information about autism was not as, um, readily available. And, right. Um, so, so uh, it, he was diagnosed with autism. I think that is what catapulted me into this, in, into the journey of autism. Um, and I think that, um, 
what it did was it just changed the whole course of, of how I practice medicine, how, mm-hmm. how I think. And I, um, I, you know, basically, um, uh, with the help of folks, uh, in, in Los Angeles was able to find some help and, and, and go through a journey of, of, of therapies. And, um, and I think through that journey, it really, um, made me realize how fortunate, how blessed we were as a family to have people who were, were guided us. And I think the two little letters behind our name helped. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I just knew how hard it was. And so I changed my whole practice focus. I went back to, to school. I got certified in developmental pediatrics. And now I serve as a developmental and behavioral pediatrician and serve families to help diagnose, eva- you know, evaluate, diagnose, manage um, children with special needs, including autism, and help the families, you know, navigate and advocate for them. Can you imagine? How difficult that must be for those families who have one of these children come crashing into their world and they don't have those two little letters behind their names, both in terms of understanding, but also in terms of negotiating the the system, how difficult that has to be. Dr. Hardwick, can you speak to that now you've got uh, initials behind your name as well but they're not actually in the medical field so what was your journey like and how did you get into the field yeah um so the short answer is um i, I was a late diagnosed um uh adult on the spectrum i was i was 36 when i was diagnosed i'll be 45 here in, in about a month um and so, um, you know, that sort of started the trajectory of me. You know, I'm a pastor, uh, an author. And so, um, you know, being someone in, in the faith community started the trajectory of me exploring um, why our faith communities tend to not um, be a central hub of support for mm-hmm. families right. impacted by autism and other disabilities and so um you know i was late diagnosed but I, but i tell people that i knew probably around the age of seven or eight that there were significant differences between me and my peers i didn't understand things um i'm i pretended to understand a lot of things my mom records of course this is after i was diagnosed and we were doing some history with my a therapist that diagnosed me, she mentioned that when I was in second or third grade, a teacher told her that, you know, your son is very smart, but there's something wrong with him and I can't figure it out. Um, mm. And and so I, I knew, I just didn't have the language to explain why I didn't understand things. I didn't understand why people did certain things. Uh, come to find out, it was just um, the inability to read nonverbal language like body language, social cues, facial expressions, uh, all those types of things. Um, And and the last thing I'll say is it it was a challenge, even though it was verbal, but, you know, we've all heard the saying that 90% of all communication is nonverbal. So if you're someone like me who doesn't have that translator, you can imagine how much you miss um, and how difficult it is to navigate a world where people are, quote unquote saying things that they're not actually saying and they're expecting you to understand what's going on. So 
So yeah, so 36 years old, I was was diagnosed, and I um I've just done a lot of work in in um, churches and faith communities, trying to make them more accessible for people with autism and other disabilities. Now, let me ask you a question. As someone who was uh, fairly impacted on the spectrum, you know, people have a misunderstanding of what autism is. And some people are on under the mistaken impression that people with autism don't have feelings because they may be blunt and they may be even corrosive in the way they interact. They seem like they uh, are insensitive. But my experience with people with autism is that that's absolutely not correct. And that not only do they have feelings, they have intense feelings. And one of those intense feelings can be isolation. Can you tell us what you were feeling as you were going through that? Um, yeah, that's that's a big question. I, it requires a little bit of context. At the time, I was... Um, I was doing my doctorate, um, and uh, as a part of one of the classes, we had to ask seven people who knew us or worked closely with us to do an evaluation. Um, and, and a gentleman that I worked with at a church uh, who I respected wrote an evaluation of me uh, that literally read like diagnostic criteria. He said, Lamar has a hard time picking up on social cues. Uh, Lamar gets laser focused on one task at a time. And and to be honest, I had never heard the term social cues before. So like most people, when you don't know something, you Google it. Um, right. And so I, I, I started to learn what that was and started to understand this is what people have been saying about me my entire life. I, I look mm-hmm. mean. I don't have facial expressions. I sound like a robot. All things that kids would say. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, I was actually transitioning um, from being the pastor to youth and young adults to being the lead pastor at the church I was in. And that was a very difficult period of time because I went from working with teenagers. And I tell people, you know, nobody really thought anything about it because all teenagers are socially awkward. So I just kind of fit in <laughs> with the teenagers. And mm-hmm. But the more I had to spend time um, speaking in the adult service and interacting with adults, um, it was just really hard. It was really hard. They said a lot of things about me that I knew I would never, like he walked past me, he didn't speak, he's unapproachable, he looks angry, people didn't want me to be the next pastor, especially in the South. I'm in Atlanta, in the the South, where, where the Bible Belt and people... Yes. You know, expect you to be extroverted and those types of things. And yes. and I had a really hard time. And that's really what drove me to get some help because people were saying things that I was doing that I knew I would never do on purpose. Right. Um, and so as you talk about the, the feelings, it, it was uh, very hurtful because I knew I would never treat people that way on purpose. So I realized there's something I'm missing. And I had to ask myself uh, this question. Uh, and that question was, what do people experience when they experience me? Right. And, and that's what sort of led me to um, understanding how people felt about how I behaved. Mm-hmm. Um, and it led me to getting a diagnosis. But it was a very, very tough, lonely. I grieved a lot because I it was like meeting myself for the first time. Right. Um, not the person I thought I was presenting, but... 
um, that there's this total, totally different person that everybody's experiencing that I didn't think that was happening. So it was, it was emotionally very, very tough. And that's interesting because I actually, um, I haven't recently given it, but I used to fairly frequently give a talk called mask and talked about the mask that people wear and how the way we perceive ourselves as presenting and the way that somebody else sees us, it may be two different things and that the mask that we are showing them may not be the one that we actually want them to see. And even as we look in the mirror at ourselves, we're looking at ourselves through a mask of our own self-perception. And that may not be what the world is connecting with. And when the two are not in congruence, then we get things coming back at us that we don't anticipate. You know, we think that people should be responding to us one way, they're responding to us another way. And it, it creates incredible stress and, and can create that stress causes inflammation and can even create disease. So we see diseases, both physical and mental and emotional, cropping up with that kind of discongruence. So it is very interesting that you explain it that way. And that is something that everybody goes through. We're, we're born putting on a mask. I mean, you know, the average baby comes into the world, puts on the cute little googly, cuddly uh, mask that connects with the parent strongly and makes the parent want to be a part of that child. Sometimes with children who don't do that as well, there can be a disconnect and the parents can have a difficult time connecting. And as that child grows, they also experience what you're describing, having that disconnect where people are judging you mm -hmm. and reading you in ways that are totally unintentional for you. And mm -hmm. that read can actually be very, very hurtful to the person who has autism and is experiencing that incongruence. Mm -hmm. Now, Dr. Lorraine, how did you come into this field of expertise? Doctor, you muted. There That's, you go. Okay, I um, well, actually, my first job after I graduated uh, with my bachelor's degree was sadly in a state institution up in Michigan in 1974, and um, I will tear up as I think about it. it, it it, it was what encouraged me, inspired me to do whatever I could with my career to help parents and communities be able to support and engage and help individuals with autism and other developmental challenges to succeed and to make it. And that's, that's what I've done for many years and uh that's my passion and mm -hmm. i have um worked uh in you know i started working at the institution then i worked in uh, a school district that nearby the institution because parents sued the state of michigan and said no our kids can't live in institution You're not providing good education so they were bust out and i was hired to help 
develop a comprehensive curriculum to train the staff. And I'd only been there two years, but I was considered an expert mm-hmm. <laughs> and developed a comprehensive curriculum to show that people who were living in institutions, children could learn and they could be very successful and teachers could gain the skills to teach. And it was a wonderful experience. And then when I left Michigan, I eventually moved to Massachusetts and down to Florida. And my first job in Florida was at the University of South Florida in the talk program, which was training for acquisition of language in kids. And as a speech language pathologist and an educator and eventually a behavior analyst, I was thrilled. Kids were coming in, they were nonverbal. They were nonverbal, they could say a sound. And we were able to work with them and they would go from nonverbal to speaking in sentences in a matter of months. And that was an incredible program. And it was with that program that I said, okay, there, I, I can get kids talking. I know how to uh, get them, learn how they learn because you have to design for them. And then it was in the, soon after I left the University of South Florida um, and I went into private practice, I began working with a lot of children with autism and continued to work with. And one of the things that was challenging um, was there was not a lot available out there that would help with how they learned. And I happened to read something about interactive metronome and I thought, oh, oh my gosh, this is amazing. This is just what's needed. And I called the company and I said, um, I want, you know, the sa- they said, oh, they were over in Orlando then. I said, the salesmen are coming over. Uh, they could come and share with you interactive metronome. And um, so they came over and one of the salesmen started telling me about the, what the product could do. And I went on and I said, oh, my goodness, you know, if, you, if it can do this, then this is the impact it's going to have on people with autism and with other developmental challenges. And that salesman is now the CEO of the company. And he said, you helped us so much figure out what this product could do. And mm-hmm. what it does is it it's a, and, and here's the this box that I love, I've shared with so many families, that what it does, it helps the through tempo, it helps improve coordination of motor skills, visual skills, and auditory skills. I had clients before I am, they would look who were on the spectrum, they would look, they would listen to me or look, but it was hard to do both. Mm-hmm. Oh, Let's try this. And then they loved it. They said, this is wonderful. And there's a wonderful story that I have, I think, uh, about um, a lady who was uh, diagnosed with autism. And I met her mom when she was, uh, and Ann Mellon was the mom. And she, her daughter was born in the early 1970s. And I thought, and look what this mom has accomplished. Mm -hmm. Her daughter never went to institutions. She found a way. I said, she's the parent that I know that other parents can do because her daughter was nonverbal and severe um, sensory issues and just so many 
challenges. And her mom found a way. And then I asked her mom to write a book called Autism Believe in the Future to empower parents. My whole purpose has been to empower community, but empower communities, but also parents. Because when I started in the field, oh, parents can't do this. We have to put them in special learning centers. No, we don't. Parents and communities can provide what is needed. And one of the most important instruments has been interactive metronome. Because with this, it, it is a timing and the behavior analyst in me likes the fact that it measures everything. It counts. It tells you how well somebody's doing. And they would do interactive metronome. And it would be incredible what I would see the next week or so. Or parents would send me these notices and say, oh, look, you can do this now. And it's wonderful. So exactly how does interactive metronome work? Well, interactive metronome you is a program that provides auditory and with some of the games they have now like brain beat and uh it provides and these game these programs now have um visuals where if a child they have to look and follow and they have to clap to a tempo and if they're too mm -hmm. fast you get a certain beat or they're too slow you get a certain sound uh in the respective ear, too slow, too fast. Also, that was initially what we had. And then later they developed games so that if you clapped, then uh, that soccer ball would go in the, the proper area so that you could score, you know, it would go. Right. And then you could... Um, Make a sandwich. That was the one that kids loved. You would clap, and this the something would fall on that bread, and something else would fall on that bread. It would move across the table, and something. And you had this wonderful big sandwich at the end, and the kids loved that. So uh, that was how it worked. And um, as and it would only have to be generally 15, 20 minutes a day, and then mm -hmm. you would see incredible gains, like. Teachers would say, oh, wow, that att their attention is so much better. And the parents would say, oh, wow, they can do tasks around home much better. And they look, eye contact is incredible. And, it, and the, only, the only thing I did differently was the interactive metronome. And right. there are other programs that um, I have done as well. I have a program called Smile Talk Soar, which is a way to work with not young nonverbal children to get them uh it's the smile part where i smile and i hold it and eventually mm -hmm. like, and then we and i think i think that's really really important and interesting because as dr hardwick was talking about and i i, I worked with uh another young man mm -hmm. recently um actually he's not that young he's in his 40s mm -hmm. um but you know it was very very uh successful businessman but one of the things like dr hardwick experienced is this perception of him being mean or unapproachable right. and i actually spent many hours working with him teaching him how to smile and you know people think about smiling as just coming automatic but it's not automatic no. you know actually in my program with young kids what i do because 
we are wired as human beings to respond to things in the environment, operant, that something occurs and over generations and uh, hundreds and thousands of years, we have learned that there are certain things that if somebody looks over there, you, you're going to see what they're looking at. They don't have mm -hmm. to say look typically. So mm -hmm. what I start with is smile. And what I say is to the parents, I want you to smile and I don't want you and I want you to hold it and don't move for a while. Mm -hmm. Just too often with smile and want. So I go smile plus hold and they and that's all the child sees. There's nothing else to distract. And then mm -hmm. I come in and you know how I test if parents have been following that? When they come in the waiting room that next week. I was like, yep, you've been working on that. I can see it. That child walks in and smiles. I had, and I had this wonderful story. Oh, my gosh. There was uh, a little kid I started with. His, um, he was active military, and he was stationed in the uh, Middle East. And I had started working with his little one. And uh, he went from minimally verbal, nonverbal, to uh, verbal, saying words and smiling and engaging. And the mom was so excited. And when the dad came home for a, uh, a visit, he came in and he walked in and uh, he just looked at me and said, oh my gosh, the, you've worked miracles with my son. Cause, and as I walked out of the, the dad sat in the waiting room, as we walked out of the therapy session, he the little boy broke into a big smile, ran to his dad, hugged him, saw a kid across the room, and then took that kid and said, hey, let's play. And they played tag around the room. And dad is mm -hmm. like, I've never seen him do that. That's amazing. I said, that's what um, he's learned to do. And once we learn to read somebody's smile plus whole and then start to read some of those gestures, it's not that I teach it. It's just that I do it in a way that they, because we're wired to attend to that, that's how we developed, um, they, they attend and they uh, learn from watching like, oh, it's over there. And they'll look, oh yeah, oh, it's over there. That kind of thing. Dr. Hardwick, how difficult was it for you to connect with that, that sense of smile and to attach meaning to it? Um. I think the biggest challenge is, is that, um, you, you know, you do, we do mimic behavior, but if you are, if your neurology um, doesn't allow you to, I tell people there's, we have to have a translator to translate the meaning of certain um, movements and facial expressions. And if you don't have that from an early age, it becomes increasingly difficult to recognize it. And so um, I, as part of my evaluation, I had to um, take a um, an assessment of different facial expressions. Um, and I think I got maybe three out of 30, right? Mm -hmm. um, and smiling was something that I was only able to consistently recognize when it was attached to laughter. Okay. So, um, you know, you, so that makes it difficult to to know, um, you know, when someone's smiling, especially if it's not at the end result of a a joke or something funny, um, mm -hmm. because really that was the only way that I knew, okay, I'm definitely certain that that is a smile. Um, and I, I imagine that has to be difficult, too, because 
there can be different smiles for different things and smiles can have different meanings. I mean, I kind of liken it to speaking Chinese. I, I was learning to speak Mandarin and the Chinese have a million different ways that you can say shh, you know, mm -hmm. depending on what the intonation is, shh, 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 shh you know, mm -hmm. and for like the first year, and I'm I'm good with languages, but for the first year of speaking Chinese, it actually, it took me a long time to get the intonations. I mean, to, to, to just even recognize that they were there. Mm -hmm. And so I was missing context. I was, I was, you know, missing the, the whole meaning. And I imagine that the smile for someone who's dealing with autism at a more advanced level is kind of that experience of, of having to sort out not only whether this is a smile, but what exactly does this particular one mean and how do I connect to it? How, what is my response to that smile? Is it appropriate for me to smile back? Or is this person actually smirking at me and I, I shouldn't be smiling back at them? Or, uh, mm -hmm. you know, is this a, a sardonic smile and I might need to run for my life? You know, it, it just being able to read the smile. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's so many, there's so many factors that go into being able to read body language and facial expressions and social cues. And one of the things that I share often is, is that um, sometimes I can process it, but it's, it's too late. Like the interaction is right. already over um, right. because you only have about, you know, half a second to a second, maybe two to, you know, it's the way I explain it to parents who, who I've mentored their children, it's like tennis. You know, once that ball is hit across, you got to hit it back immediately. Mm -hmm. And so what I discovered is, is that there are some things that I would walk away and think, oh, that's what they meant. Or, mm -hmm. oh, that's probably what that was. But, you know, that interaction and 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 the, the challenges, especially as you get older, is people have far less grace. Right. For you, the older you get, because they expect you to, quote unquote, know how to behave. Right. And so that interaction can be over and done with, and I might not get a second chance to um, to make a first impression, so to speak, because the people have formed their opinion about whether or not uh, I'm socially aloof or generally it's people just categorizing me as angry or unapproachable. And so, yeah, there it's, it's far more complicated. Sometimes mm -hmm. I think that we make it out to be, it's not simply just a smile, it's the context, it's the timing, it's, you know, what was it attached to? Um, like you said, there's the voice intonation is something that I uh, have struggled with. Sarcasm is something that I don't get because it's dependent on physical, you know, it's like physical comedy. Their body has to be a certain way, their head has to tilt a certain way. And mm -hmm. in the moment, I'm not able to process that quickly enough and so mm -hmm. oftentimes i answer rhetorical questions because i think they're real questions right. and you know so there's just so many things that factor into it that um and i just ask people to just give grace and slow down and let people let uh, people like myself process and 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 be clear um with your communication it's okay to say one of the things that tipped me off 
um, is that I, I started to realize how many times people had to tell me when they were joking. Right. And so I started to realize I'm not getting something because everyone's always having to tell me, you know, that was a joke, right? Um, which meant I wasn't processing something. And so, um, but I, I tell people it's okay to say that because um, chances are I'm probably not going to get it. So it's mm -hmm. okay to just be clear about what your intentions were in that, in that interaction. Right, right. Now, Dr. Patra, you're a developmental pediatrician now. And we see this time and again with kids with autism and, and with other de developmental disabilities for, for that matter. There are things that can be, be done, like the interactive metronome. And then one of the programs that I worked with um, when I had the Gregory Center for Exceptional Children and Families, we also worked with uh, patterning. And patterning basically was you took the baby all the way back to the point in development where they may have arrested or, or, or um, not processed. And so we did things like commando crawling, and then we switched it to regular crawling to get the brain talking to each other from side to side and to open up communication. And there were lots of things done also had um, drum therapy. It was actually a dance class for children with disabilities so that they could participate in, and other kids from the community uh, participated in the class as well. And it initially sounded, started out as just a basic dance class for the kids, but we had drummers that would come in. And very quickly, we realized that because of the rhythms of the, the drums and the sequences and the patterns, we could control the experiences of the children. We could bring them up. We could bring them down. With children with all sorts of different disabilities. But in particular, we did find that with children with autism, that we could work around. And we had to be careful how we worked around because you, with autism, um, and depending on how intense it is, you can get over stem. And so, you know, the, our drummers were very keen at, at watching the children and, and uh, you know, got to know the children. So they would know when to bring those drums back to bring the child back into their calm place. And they knew when to take them up to pull them out. And so we we were able to see some children who were not verbal become verbal. We were able to see some children who were not interactive become interactive with other kids around this musical experiences of the drums, which is very, very primal. What are some of the other things that we can do with these kids um, developmentally and not just with kids, but with adults, because like Dr. Hardwick, some people do not get diagnosed until much later in life. And they're kind of stumbling and bumbling around trying to figure out why don't I fit in or why can't I make this work? Why am I not? What, what am I missing here? So what sorts of things can people do that can enhance their experience? Um, both from the point of view of a person with autism or the point of view of someone supporting a person with autism. And that means whether that's someone in your family or it's someone on your job. 
Wow. That's a, that's a, that is a very good, great question, actually, that I think everyone asks. Um, I don't think we have enough time to talk about all the things. <laughs> to be honest, I would, it, we, we would need days, to be honest. And right, I right. I can't even tell you how amazing it is for me to hear all three of you and your experiences of, um, you know, of, uh, interactions or therapies or um, uh, that the views that you found to be helpful because I'm, like my, my, my brain is just going because I'm, I'm thinking about <laughs> in terms of like how the neural networks uh, you know what 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 gets uh, connected and fired and and um, you know I know development I know how how you know babies develop into you know into functioning um, children and adults and and um, what you described in terms of the um the motor patterning you know or, mm -hmm. or taking uh you know taking the child back to wherever their development got derailed right mm -hmm. and helping them kind of move along and recapitulate right mm -hmm. um, the, the those those patterns whatever it is um and then and helping them get to you know move along that's actually one of the key things. Um, mm -hmm. Even though, to be honest, that's not what how people are thinking, but that's mm -hmm. actually what needs to be done. Um, right. We don't have enough evidence-based research being done in this area, which um, which uh, actually needs to be done to to you know to to allow. Um, more and more people to do this and third-party payers to pay for it. But mm -hmm. so what, what are some things to do? So um, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of we have to go back to early stages of development, knowing that the sensory motor system is really one of the key areas. That's the foundation of the brain. That's mm -hmm. how the brain um, communicates initially. And then, and then neurons these wires in our brain that then go on to then communicate with other wires to then develop um uh, skills uh happen and but but it really starts from that basement of the brain which is our sensory system and our motor system that communicates and the way it happens early on in the first year of life is through these motor patterns that happen mm -hmm. right and so there's no coincidence why children start talking after they get up off the ground and start walking. There's no coincidence. Right. Um, in, in my world, we say that language is a latecomer in development. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The, the, well, what needs to happen first is you need to have a very solid, integrated uh, brain and body system um, that, that has gone through motor patterns for 12 months and all of those patterns start from um actually they start from in utero when the when the mm -hmm. when the when the um uh the the the, the baby is uh, is in mommy's you know in tummy all the movement patterns that are happening you know in utero and then the baby coming out as a newborn on day of life zero uh, and and then developing their you know the the, the head and neck uh, strength to then be able to roll and then sit up and then crawl on all fours and then get up and creep and then start walking. All of those motor patterns are critical to allow the brain to start connecting, as you said, from both sides of the brain to then right. allow 
then the speech and language develops. So that needs to happen. And so what I do as a developmental and behavioral pediatrician is, you know, I sort of look at the child from a developmental standpoint and see, um, you know, where is the child developmentally compared to other children their, their age? And I look at really more at strengths and challenges as opposed to diagnoses. I mean, diagnoses, mm-hmm. I think, are important mm-hmm. for certain things, but they, they don't describe the child and they're not who the child right. is. It, it's exactly. Just, and, 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 and so, and, and that's what I spend a lot of time telling parents and explaining to parents that the label isn't, isn't who your child is. The label is just a way to describe behaviors and describe mm-hmm. the development. Um, let's talk about what we, what we need to do. Right. And, and so early on, um, I would say majority of our, of our kids, even though the standards of care for autism are speech and language therapy and, and uh, applied behavioral analysis, um, <clears throat> early on, they very often need physical therapy and occupational therapy mm-hmm. um, to help, again, create those neural networks, those connections in the brain from both sides to allow then the body to then also move and develop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so very often um, those therapies are important early on. Um, in terms of physical therapy, sensory integrative occupational therapy, uh, and then speech therapy. So all those, all those are the therapies um, that, that that are important. Um, but I I tell parents early on, I said, get your child moving. Let's get mm-hmm. your child moving. Let's have them move. Make those patterns of you know that 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 you described. Have them practice those those movement patterns. Whether it's in the living room, take take all the cushions off your your couch and and have the child be comfortable with navigating on all fours. Um, you know, from the carpet to the couch to the um to the pillows to 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 the to the carpet again. Help them help their brain register all those movement patterns that they're then able to then move on to then develop the other um, ongoing developmental skills. And so um, I get get my kids um, early on um, very often uh, involved in music programs and Mm -hmm. as you said, rhythm and music. And there's a reason I, you know, you were, you were mentioning about the rhythm and the, the, the drummer and, and um, I saw the big smile. (laughs) Oh, I was just like, my, my brain was on fire because um, what we know is that music is one of the key um, tools that we have that um, actually uh, activates all parts of the brain. And we know mm-hmm. that through brain research, the neurology of music. We know that not only there's a music center in our brain, but music activates all parts of our brain um, from from the higher sort of thinking part of our brain, as well as um, our subcortical or, or, you know, our cerebellum and midbrain, the, the real primitive parts of our brain. And so music is a, is a key way to activate and, and engage the different parts of the brain. So I love getting music um, and, and, and movement involved mm-hmm. in, um, in, in with these kids. Um, and, and, and it's, it's interesting. Um, there's actually a therapy called neurologic music therapy, NMT. Right, right, right. A, a lot mm-hmm. of people are not aware of it. I certainly wasn't until years ago when I, 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 um, I, uh, found out more about it actually through a colleague of mine who's, a, who does music therapy, you know, and, and she told me about uh, neurologic music therapy and, and I'm like, what is that? And, um, and anytime, you know, again, with autism, uh, you know, listen, um, there unfortunately is no 
real standards of care in terms of mm-hmm. interventions and really what the roadmap is for treatment of autism because there's not one autism there's many i i, I was gonna say i i, I would think with autism, autism it really is um is it has to be kind of individualized because they're all at the we are all at a different place on the spectrum and depending on where you're landing on that spectrum that's right. going to d- determine right it determines and, and that's and that's actually you. that's actually what now um medicine is sort of uh shifting to is not just looking at autism as a big you know as as as, as a term but um to 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 describe um individuals but really individualizing and and endophenotyping right so individualizing the different types of different um, so we're getting all of the all of these letters falling out the the pdd and all i mean just it's it's like what 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 there's been a a big reshifting of of how autism is described because of now now through brain research and through a lot of uh, research over the last couple decades we, we know now that that there is not one uh one autism there's probably you know a, a, a gazillion a, a, a gazillion and at least yes. in my as i'd like to say 25,000 years of doing this i i i i can probably identify five or six different subtypes right. uh, just in my own practice i can t- and 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 based on which subtype it is that determines then how you address it there are mm-hmm. some some individuals that have more, as I as, as I mentioned, like more of a sensory motor sort of mm-hmm. type, and they mm-hmm. need more of the physical uh, interventions. Uh, there's some that have more of a language base, and they need more maybe the language sort of intervention. Mm-hmm. There's some that have more of a medical or biomedical mm-hmm. sort of a um, uh, uh, type, and they may need more more medical sort of interventions and right. there's some that are more behavioral and, and and need more more of a behavioral approach so it's 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 such a spectrum which is why it is called an autism spectrum disorder but right. i think that you know the the movement piece i think is it's just it so resonates with me because i do find mm-hmm. that that um that is a big part of how the brain develops and how it, it how it engages and integrates and and, and yeah. develops the skill sets and I do feel that that is one of the core issues that that I find in a lot of my individuals with autism they 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 struggle with or they have deficits in. Okay, now there is another core issue, but I I, I do want to ask before I jump to the next uh, section because this is such a huge huge topic that we could talk forever, and we're trying to kind of shrink the length of our shows down a little bit, so we're going to kind of encapsulate it. But I definitely I'm going to bring all of you back because I I just see hours and hours worth of conversation uh, around this topic, um, Doctor Hardwick, uh, with regards to music and and rhythms and tonalities how has that impacted your life and how have you been able to use it to your advantage yeah i i um music is a big part of uh my life i think for most people this is generalization but for most people on the spectrum um we tend to be able to to recognize um, patterns um, and to appreciate patterns and rhythms. Um, mm-hmm. Some of that I think is why neurologically we tend to lean towards repetition 
right? Mm-hmm. It's it is most natural to us. Like I, I do the same things the same ways, eat the same things. Mm-hmm. I even I even joke that I buy the same clothes. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I this black shirt I probably have ten of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but but music is a is is something that is also key to that because of the natural repetition and the rhythm. Um, now one of the, one of the challenges that is kind of one of the hallmarks, uh, Mm -hmm. that we, we see a lot with autism, uh, they call echolalia where one is repeating rhythms and Mm -hmm. things. So that, that actually, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. And even if you think about things, let's listen to Dr. Batra. And even as you think about things like stemming, um, Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. It is it is a natural De- way. Define of, stimming. Define stimming for our audience. Stimming is basically self stimulation, um, mm-hmm. and so that's when you see the child that likes to spin or flap. Um, um, those are typically the things that most people pay attention to. But uh, self stimulation is something that everyone does, um, even if you're not on the spectrum, right? So it's it's you know, biting your fingernails or popping your knuckles or twirling your hair or clicking Mm -hmm. the pen repeatedly, right? Mm -hmm. But it's that natural inclination towards repetition and rhythm. And so um, a lot of times I will share with parents, you know, unless a child is endangering themselves or endangering someone around them, let, let them stem. It's their natural way of trying to uh, self-regulate their sensory challenges, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I tell people the best way I can describe it is, is like when you're driving down the road and you think you smell something burning, the first thing you naturally do is turn down the radio mm-hmm. as if you can't smell in here at the same time. And so, <laughs> right. But it's, it's our way of trying to regulate one sense to get a hold of another. Right. And that's what self-stimulation is. And so, mm-hmm. But I say that to say that that's that's that rhythm and repetition and uh, sensing that is built into music. So that's been a, a big thing for me. I go to sleep to music. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I have my headphones. I don't sleep very well because, of, you know, my brain doesn't make a lot of melatonin. So the doctor has me on. Finally, when I got 40, I asked for help because it was <laughs> it was cool when I was 20 to be able to stay up all night. But when I hit 40... Right. It wasn't cool anymore, so right, I finally right, relented and asked my asked my doctor to help me. But those are things that I use to help regulate um, sensory overload. The challenges is being in in environments where I can't control the volume. Um, so as a pastor, like people ask me all the time, how do you deal with the loud noise when you're in church and the music? Well, one, I'm the pastor, so I know everything that's going to happen that morning. So mm-hmm. that gives me a sense of control. Over, I know exactly how long the song is. I know um, we also at our church provide people who have sensory issues with with noise canceling headphones. So sometimes nice. I use I use mine, or sometimes I stay in my office if I'm sensory overloaded. But but music is a large part of it. Um, for me, I would just say that the challenge is that is when you're not able to control uh, the volume. Mm-hmm. Um, which is ironic because a lot of people on the spectrum, like we we <laughs> we have challenges with loud noises, but we tend to be loud people. 
<laughs> right? So, right. That is interesting. That is interesting. Um, but yeah, mu- music is a huge part. And I've actually used that for children and teenagers that I've mentored. Um, I, I would ask that we had a gentleman at our church that gave piano lessons. So a lot of the parents that would come to me as I was mentoring their children, I would direct them to him uh, as a way of helping them with a lot of the sensory things, but also giving them a sense of self-confidence is something that because it's, it's natural, um, the repetition and the rhythm, they actually tend to do very well at things like piano lessons. Uh, but it also gives them the sense of confidence that it's something that they can succeed at. So it's all that works together and it's worked, um, for me. And it was a part of my therapy. Um, you know, I didn't just get diagnosed. I spent over two years with a therapist that diagnosed me mm-hmm. to help me to unravel a lot of things because I was 36. I was, you know, full grown and married and had a career and kids. And so I had to figure out ways to, to try to, to navigate life. And so part of, part of what I did with her also included, you know, using music and, and rhythm and repetition as well. Yeah. Wonderful. Now, Dr. Lorraine, Yes, I saw you over here uh, in, engaging, and then don't feel like you have to do that. This is a conversation; you can jump in. So, okay. what uh, that that hand was waving? What what was it that well, you wanted to tell us? That the what to me, what is so exciting about interactive metronome is it is a um, easy to use, starting with young children up to uh, I have individuals in their fifties and doing it interactive metronome and what it can do is help that visual and auditory system sync Mm -hmm. so they can process information and it decreases the what i've seen is decreasing stress and more Mm -hmm. comfort and the ability to process different types of information simultaneously because Mm -hmm. the system auditory visual and motor and the motor are all in sync and and we can measure it so we know and then in fact my clients will say to me it's going well it's going well i have a uh, guy who's in college and he does interactive metronome he's done it for years and he when he needs it he said i'm going to start it again and i'll do it for a few days but they recognize when they need it and then it gets them back to where they um are comfortable and gets them back on track, gets them insane. Really back on track and they love mm-hmm. it. And that's what I like that, um, you know, it can go home with them. They can uh, easily do it. Um, and it's only 15 or 20 minutes a day, but the actual changes in is so, the change is so powerful for them. And they're like, this is amazing. What this is helping me do everything. Uh, it's easier. Everything is easier. And especially mm-hmm. a lot for the social aspect, because mm-hmm. when you're engaging, trying to engage with people, you're going to see body movement. You're going to hear things and um, process lots of information simultaneously. And they say it has helped. Um, the interactive metronome helps that tremendously. And uh, it's easy to do. Perfect. To do. Perfect. Yes. Now, I'm going to throw one more thing out there on the table, and we're not going to dive real deep into this because, again, I'm trying to control time because this show typically, because we have these great conversations, we've been running into two and three hour shows. So we're trying to call that down. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, like I said, we're definitely going to bring it back. 
But there is one area that I would like to at least superficially delve in and we can come back uh, to it at a a later date, Um, because I think that it is an area that is very important uh, in the management of autism, and that is diet. And uh, I remember back in the olden days when people still rolled dinosaurs, uh, there was conversation. Uh, we, I went to the Dan conferences um, and there was always the conversation around the diet. And at that time, I was working with a doctor at the Haridis. And one of the things that we were proposing was the, the leaky brain, the leaky blood brain uh, barrier and how diet impacted that. And we were really pretty much laughed out of the room. And now we've come full circle to embrace that diet does have huge impact on autism. So I'd like for each of you to talk a little bit uh, about that. And again, keep it brief because we're going to keep this nice and tight. So let's start. uh, Let's start this one with the person who's experienced it. Let's go back and start this one with uh, Dr. Hardwick. Um, Sensory issues with with, with foods and have there been foods that, uh, at least for you, have been able to, to help you deal with your autism? Yeah, I'll just say really quickly, um, you know, there's always some of the challenges, especially if you uh, are hypersensitive to certain things, which I tend to be with certain uh, textures. Um, But one of the things that I have used and learned as a uh, as a life hack that's helped me is um, crunchy foods. Um, tend tend to help me. So, like for example, if I know that I'm going out um, to some kind of gathering, or if I'm going somewhere with my wife, and it's going to be a lot of sensory input, uh, I tend to pack my pocket full of hard candy that I can crunch. Um, but while I crunch, I count, um, and so it sort of is like a sensory hack. That um, makes so much sense chewing gum as well um because of the rhythm and the repetition i can focus on that input um so it's like the metronome right it's it's being able to do two things at once but but uh, as far as food i'll just say keep it brief i think um hard candies crunchy things um things like pretzels things that I could easily pop, not necessarily because I'm hungry, but because it helps me with sensory input to manage uh, when things get overwhelming. So I tend to pack my pockets full of hard candy gum, mm-hmm. crunchy things. Um, those things tend to to be very helpful. And for the parents out there who have a child who is sensory adversive, it is a little bit counterintuitive because they respond to the the loud noises and cracks and pops and things like that can drive them crazy. But as Dr. Hardwick said, if they have that crunchy thing of their own, they can put in their own sensory input to override that. So that even if your child is sensory adversive, that may be something that you, you may want to try. Thank you very much for that tip, Dr. Hardwick. Dr. Batra, talk to us about this 
sensory type of, of thing and, and how diet plays in with that. Because uh, I mean, you know, people have just all out battles over a, a, a kitchen table. And my daughter was on the spectrum and we used to go to war over certain foods and it wasn't until uh, um, spaghetti with stewed tomatoes in it was one of them and it wasn't until she was actually an adult that she was able to tell me what that was about because I was thinking it was just a taste thing and one of the rules in our house was you didn't have to like a food but you had to at least taste it have one spoonful of that food to develop your palate and that was one thing she could never uh, get past and it was always going to to be uh, a battle and she was able to explain that later that it wasn't a taste thing for her at all. It was a textural thing. And she still to this day can't do the, the stewed tomatoes. Wow. Okay. So um, there, there's two separate things here um, that uh, um, re regarding the gut um, the, 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 that I'd like to bring up. Um, and one is um, I think, Dr. Cheryl, you, you were mentioning, uh, I think initially the the um, the gut and the leaky leaky gut mm -hmm. sort of issues, right? Mm -hmm. And um, what we do know is that uh, individuals with with um, on the spectrum for autism tend to have a higher incidence of gastrointestinal issues, whether yes. it's you know um, constipation, diarrhea, bloating, a variety of different. Uh, sort of stomach issues, right? Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. and we don't know why. There are some theories, and 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 I and and we do know that there's a subset. Again, these these are all the subsets, right? Mm -hmm. Subtypes of autism that there are. There are some a subset of individuals um, uh, on the spectrum who probably um, are affected quite a bit by dietary um, uh, issues, and specifically. Um, foods that are more inflammatory right um that that create more inflammation in the gut and, and, and can you of, just tell our audience what some of those types of foods might be foods would be things like um gluten and wheat and dairy right so those those would be the the the, the big ones that i think people um talk about um, uh, but, um, uh, the, the thought is that in certain individuals, they're, they are more susceptible to, um, having more inflammation in their gut because of the types of foods that they're consuming and, and the inflammation then causes the stomach lining to then become a little bit, um, less, um, uh, impermeable, right? So, so it, 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 it opens it up to then, um, uh, allow um, bacteria and things to um, escape the gut and go into the blood system and, and which then would, will eventually go into the brain system, right? And so the thought is that, that that's what uh, the leaky gut sort of association is thought about. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, and so those are the individuals, again, it, it sort of depends on what the, what the, uh, uh, sort of subtype um, uh, uh, that, that, that uh, the patient that's presenting to me, um, those would be the individuals that I would very, very um, 
quickly have them uh, have more of a restrictive diet, maybe try, Mm -hmm. you know, a gluten-free diet and, you know, casein-free diet and, and see um, if we can, and as well as maybe using probiotics, which also helps to kind of, you know, heal and coat the, 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 the stomach lining. Um, so, so the, the focus of the intervention focus of the food and the nutrition is, is really to, um, not only heal the gut, but also, um, provide the gut with foods that are not inflammatory, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the second piece here is really the sensory, which is what Dr. Um, Hardwick was, uh, uh, alluding to in terms of foods that provide a, um, a sensory input to the nervous system mm-hmm. that then can uh, have a calming effect or alerting effect. Right. And, and so that's very common. And, and I have to tell you with, as, as you mentioned about your daughter, that, um, you know, we have two rules in, in pediatrics, um, uh, that you, you, um, there, there's two battles that you're never going to win with, with children, um, <laughs> eating and pooping. So you don't get into <laughs> with, uh, with, with children, uh, uh-huh. with those two things. And so with the eating, it's really tricky because very often individual, you know, kids with, um, who are on the spectrum, they very often have sensory issues. They, they often are very picky eaters and, and, and mealtime and, and feeding the child becomes such an issue. I mean, it, it just mm-hmm. takes over the whole, um, peace and harmony of family. And, and so, um, in terms of the sensory piece, uh, you have to remember the tongue has, has uh, loads of sensory receptors that allow us to taste and feel. Um, our nose plays a big role in terms of eating, in terms of smelling. Right. Right. Uh, and, and our touch, t- uh, also plays a, a big, big role. And, and, and so, very often for children who may have certain sensory sensitivities or they may um, be drawn towards or be calmed if they have more crunchy foods, like Dr. Hardwick was mentioning, things that, you know, he can bite into that then sends, his, sends a message to his brain that this is okay, it's safe, and alerts him and it helps him feel more calm and um, with with the consuming whatever the food is. And so, so again, that's where, depending on what the sensory profile is of the child, um, either, either hard crunchy foods, um, are, are helpful or sometimes preparing, sometimes even just preparing the hands because the hand, the tactile plays a big role in, in then how the child senses, you know, the taste, um, sometimes mm-hmm. just having, you know, speech, speech pathologists will do this a lot, you know, putting, putting food like around the, around the mouth first and, and having the child then take the you know, tongue and, you know, lick it so that it's not too overwhelming. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, the, the, the texture and the taste um, really feeds into the sensory profile of the, of the mm-hmm. child, which then allows the the eating to happen. So um, I don't know if that answered the question. And, to, and, and to, to make that piece really more relatable to a lot of people who don't necessarily have those issues. Uh, a lot of us got COVID. And part of the COVID was we lost our sense of smell. And so people talked about the struggle with eating because the food just didn't taste right. And there was a a, a disconnect and uh, eating disorders and all sorts of things were, were coming out of that. So that just kind of most of you can kind of relate 
to what a big piece the sensory actually plays in your perception of, of food. And when we think about what a big piece food plays societally in our relating to each other, that's that's major. So if you can work through that component, then it, it does make a big difference in the lives of people on the spectrum. Dr. Lorraine, now you have the interactive metronome. Yes. How have you seen the interactive metronome help with some of the issues surrounding foods? Well, I think what I've seen is that um, interactive metronome improves coordination, muscle coordination, um, and attention and focus. So mm -hmm. that's a big part is the improvement in the ability to attend for longer periods of time and to um, engage in more coordinated movement, which mm -hmm. helps with all aspects, including um, feeding. Mm -hmm. And another part that I wanted to also mention that I, with respect to textures, I think one of the things that is hard for um, over the years that so many have told me is mixed textures yes. are very hard. So they have to, people have to, it's not that they don't like it. It's that their system can't tell which one it is. So I just, and I'll, I'll admit to that myself because yeah, so I, uh, think that I am really fanatical fun. about eating one. I, I'm the one that yes. eats around my plate. I do not mix textures. Yeah, so I think that's really important to remember. But in terms of the interactive metronome, the in, improved focus, attention, and motor skills, the motor core, all of those uh, can impact um, feeding and mm -hmm. um, feeding self and then the chewing, all of that, I think, because everything's more coordinated and they can sense movement better. And, and um anticipate and plan and execute. Excellent. Especially, I I don't think I mentioned enough, but the ex, the attention and focus extended period uh, that where it is easier to attend for longer periods of time comfortably. Mm -hmm. you know? And like, mm -hmm. oh, I sat through that whole movie. Oh, oh, I finished that. Or, you know, it's a surprise to them that they didn't have to work at it. It just happened. Right. It's a wonderful impact of interactive metronome. So. Right. Now, uh, I want to get the, the lay voice in the room. And I, I know my co-host, he's been really, really quiet. So he has been absorbing <laughs> all of this and taking it in. So I know that his head is just reeling with questions. So do you want to throw out a couple of those questions as we're kind of wrapping the, the, the show up? Because I know that you always have some 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 good ones. Uh, I I do, but but they will probably require a lot of time. <laughs> but, <laughs> but 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 so so a couple of things. I mean, I first of all, thank you. I, it's it's been. Uh, I'm just really absorbing, and as you said, I, I love it and I I enjoy it. And I'm the least, I guess, uh, clinically inclined with 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 the language and the the expertise here. However, I I do. I mean, for me, just the general public, if you want to speak it that way, right? Uh, you know, this sensitivity issue about autism, inclusion, uh, and tolerance, I think, because, you know, listening to Dr. Hardwick, you know, just, just the ability when someone is not identifying that you have 
the autism, right? Or not able to know, notice that you are different. You have something that is different about you and, and react to you in a way that is uh, abrasive or not as, as fun, right? That, that, that challenges me. And I think, you know, I don't know if there's enough awareness to, mm -hmm. to educate people, but you know, when you're talking to someone, they might have, you know, uh, you know, something that is causing whatever it is. And if it is autism, it is autism, but you don't know that. For the most part, I encounter someone on a day-to-day -day basis. And if I don't know that they have, you know, autism, or I'm not even aware of what it looks like or how it feels like and what the reaction will be, I probably gonna be like, what's wrong with you? Right. And then now I'm going to be really bad, rude, whatever the case may be. Uh, you know, we need to do some more work about not you, Hurricane. I don't think you have a rude bone in your body. <laughs> no, well, no, I'm not talking about me. I'm just giving an example as when you have people that don't know that, you know, when you talk that the idea is you have to be sensitive to people regardless. Right. right? And, you know, understand that just because you have a perception of what a reaction or, or interaction should be doesn't mean that everybody's going to be the same. And you have to be like, you know, when you see something that may not be in your, you know, template as as the regular format you know on a normal what is normal that's a big question right you know understand that there might be some underlying you know uh, conditions whatever they are mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. in the in autism it's so i guess spacious it's so vague you know to a degree i mean uh, dr hardwick you mentioned you didn't even diagnose until 36 now all these years you had to to interact with people all the time and to your point, people are going to be like, and I didn't want to ask you this question, but I'm sure there will be some, some rude, you know, experiences that you've you've had that were not really as fun. And, you know, you, probably it's a struggle because I've had actually uh, different shows about this. And most of the things that were in common that people, when they were younger, they were really faced with adversity and, and just, you know, challenges. Bullying. And, bullying is the biggest one. People are just not nice, you know, to 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 others. Unfortunately, we're supposed to be nicer, but that that's not the case. So that, that was kind of like one of my biggest things that I wanted to talk about is just that, you know, we have hopefully the ability to to share more and talk about that. And I think I don't know if there are organizations and educational spans. You know, it's one thing to we're talking here about how you talk and work with the people with autism. How do we work with the other side of, of the people that actually interact daily, you know? And so we need to have that balance. And I think that in itself is is work that needs to be done. You are uh, speaking my language. And I, 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 me too, me too. That it's is exactly why. Yep. Yes. Yep. This is not and, about, and this is not about think, individuals. This is about, yes, yes. this is about collective society. Yes. Understanding and being inclusive and understanding. Yes. You know, uh, that they're neurodivergent individuals, people with yes. different, you know. Yes. You know. Well, 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 so the challenge, doctor, is that not everybody, I mean, again, recently we're talking about autism. You know, I mean, I, 70s, 80s, 90s, I mean, even, I mean, like, people either don't talk about it, like, there's nothing going on here, or they don't even know much about it. Now it's coming up. There's That's more true. awareness. There's more awareness. But yeah. and, and that's the other thing, like for the youth now, the, the the children are getting the attention because there's programs and stuff. Right. Many did not have that. And so they grew up, you know, to to right. middle age or even, you know, basically age through the process. Oh, without having the I have kids that I've diagnosed and the parents go, they think, wow, you know, that the, the, they realize they probably have some features as well. And yeah. Yeah, and, and then they absolutely. go through their evaluation process. Absolutely. absolutely. I, yeah. I, I think the issue is also the, the, the stigma around, you know, stigma around um, 
developmental delays, developmental issues, going back to what we were talking about, mental health, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's the whole stigma around it back in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, I think there was a a certain idea about, uh, you know, individuals with um, autism and and Mm -hmm. related disorders that they were quite impacted and and lower functioning and needed Mm -hmm. to be um uh you know as Lorraine mentioned you know you were most of them ended up being um uh uh institutionalized and 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 you know the successful ones weren't and and that's how yes. that's how you base success yes was, whether yeah. they were institutionalized or not and and I think it really I think since the rise of of, of autism in the 90s and 2000s I think really brought on a campaign of of awareness social awareness and of early signs. And, and I think now we have a whole generation of individuals who started as, as young and, you know, young children with autism now are grown ups, mm-hmm. grown up um, with autism. And, and again, it's a spectrum. So now we have to, whether we like it or not, we have to um, know that, um, you know, these are individuals that, uh, that are, are, uh, you know, have, are, 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 goal should be our focus should be not the label but how do we bring out and identify and equip in, individuals with um, on the spectrum with skills that are meaningful purposeful inclusive and 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 that's really what our our focus now is is shifting more towards um not only yes. um yes. Yes. Think clinically but also from from a governmental standpoint i think we're you know mm. we're realizing and- we need to and from a social standpoint, and I mean, you know, I'm, I'm kind of tearing up here and, and just really welling up because I started uh, with this back in the 90s in terms of trying to bring these children out in the community, bring them out into the light to foster communication that's, that's through, so important. throughout and, and, you know, to, to see it especially in like the last few years where you've got all the celebrities on board talking about these things and where we're having conversations mm-hmm. like this out in the open where children are being brought out to participate in, in, inclusively. I it just, it, it, it really warms my heart to see how far we've come. We have so much farther to go with understanding these things and, and, and frankly, with just understanding each other because we're quick to, to judge. Yes. And yet, as, as I said, we're all on the spectrum somewhere. And, uh, you know, we can, we need to just leave judge at the doorstep. Yes. Uh, <laughs> we're not, no, nobody died and, and, and left us boss. So we just need to leave judge at the, the doorstep and, and, be inclusive, accept others who are different than yes. we are, love the differences. Yes. You know? yes. yes. I, I do have one comment that I think, I think that there are so many in the community who organizations and groups, YMCA, preschools, and they, the children there that I have seen when I've gone to inclusive preschools and YMCA, all of that, they want, they feel so happy to engage with people who are different and they know who are challenging, um, have challenges. And they, and I think of my, my three children and how excited they were when they would work at the YMCA and work with the special needs kids, you know, to help them in the gymnastics program. 
it was so powerful. It was so wonderful. And I, we forget that everybody gains, you know, yes, they feel good about absolutely. themselves and they love it. So and communities gain. And I, and I remember one, uh, this was decades ago, there was a gentleman, Jeff LaFleur in Tampa, and he would train uh, gymnasts for Olympics. And he became, we asked him at one point, because my daughter said, would you consider working with kids with autism? He loved it. He ran, and the only classes he would teach would be the Olympic bound and kids with autism. He loved it. And everybody in his gymnastics, uh, in his gym loved it. So that's where I learned that communities, they feel so good when they are successful at including everyone. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Hurricane, do you have any other questions? Oh, I so I definitely do, but we're gonna have to table that for the next, mm -hmm. you know, phase of this because that we, we talk about the the spectrum and the condition and the different things that we have today and how we're working. But um the question that comes to my mind, like we talk in terms of any type of uh medical you know, uh, diagnosis, right? We, we talk about the roots of it, you know, uh, what's happening behind. Is there anything we can do to prevent things like that? Uh, what, what, what makes that, that, you know, diagnosis originally? Can it be prevented? Uh, you know, those are all questions that, you know, maybe we need to talk about. Like, yes. what's before, you know, I yes. guess someone is in, in this world. Is there anything that could be done uh, to identify from genetically? I mean, we now we are able to, to look at cancer, diabetes, and other things, you know, from a DNA perspective and see if we have potential to give that to our you know progeny and whatever and is there something that can be done there is that i'm not even i'm not sure so that's that's the question that can be on the table for the next discussion yes. and maybe we can talk about like what can be done to educate people to do maybe work because maybe there is a way you know to to do something about it in advance i don't know uh mm -hmm. and, and 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 to prepare people because if you mm -hmm. know that it's happening you might be well prepared and it's different uh, you know, stories. So those are the things that I have in mind. But uh, like I told you, we can start a whole hour now. <laughs> yes, yes. That, I mean, that is a, a whole nother conversation, a very big conversation and a very important conversation. Oh, yes. So definitely that is one that we will want to to bring back. And I hope that our three guests will be happy to uh, join us again in the future for that discussion. We have tremendously enjoyed having you and there's been a lot of good information put out here on the table. So we definitely will, will love to have all of you back. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much for having thank us. You so much. Thank you. So you have been listening to Chatters That Matters. I'm your show host, Dr. Cheryl Bryant-Bruce, MD, the celebrity doc, here with my co-host, the wonderful, the fabulous, Hisham Elamanti, Hurricane H. And we want you to come back again and again and again, participate with us, hit those like buttons, share it with your friends, tell them about the great conversations that we have. I mean, I know for us, we never leave the table without taking out, out tremendous amounts of, of information. And I think that Hurricane and I probably benefit from these conversations more than than anybody else because uh, we leave feeling pretty smart because we're just getting our brains absolutely loaded with good stuff. And so we love having you all. We love sharing 
all of this with you, our listening audience. We want you to participate. We want this to be more and more and more your show. So be sure to come back and join us again. Um, Last but not least, if each of you can tell us how we can reach you, if uh, people have further questions for you or want to hear more about the programs that you're working with. Let's start with Dr. Batra. Well, actually, let's start with Dr. Lorraine, since you're up front and center on the the screen here, at least on mine. Okay. (laughs) Um, Well, I can be reached at um, the Interactive Metronome. They can reach me there. Um, And the email, actually, I should probably have you go to um, the... Dr. Lorraine, if you can send it to us. Yeah, that's what we, I want. I'm we to will actually, <laughs> yeah, we will actually post it to the, okay. the website um, and post the information uh, so that okay, people good. will be Thank able to, to reach you. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, Dr. Hardwick. Sure. Um, probably the, the best way is I have a website. It's uh, autismpastor.com. Um, and on that website, it'll connect you all my social media, uh, my YouTube, my books, um, the website to the church that I pastor. Um, but if also if you're on uh, Twitter, you can find me at, at Autism Pastor and also um, on Instagram as well. Um, but generally, if you just also Google Lamar Hardwick, there's plenty of stuff that will come up. So I'm not hard to find. <laughs> Excellent, excellent. And Dr. Batra, how do we reach you? You can reach me on uh, email. Uh, my email is uh, anshubatra at gmail.com. Um, I'm pretty good with responding to emails. Um, Perfect. And, uh, yeah. Perfect. So we will put all of that contact information on the site. And of course, remember that if you see one of our guests, that you would like to reach out to and you don't find the information, you can always reach back to Hurricane and I, and we will make sure that you all make the the connections. So again, thank you for joining us uh, and thank our audience for participating and, and joining with us in this interesting and informative experience. We hope that you've been entertained and we hope you will come back often. We're here every week. These shows are perpetual once they've launched and also they replay multiple times in multiple different locations we're on pretty much all of the platforms both uh, the television platforms and the radio broadcasting platforms so you can catch these shows if you missed something if you want to hear it again uh, they're there for your enjoyment thanks and come again we love you have a great week Everyone. Chatters that matters. Let's talk about it.